Well, good morning. I'm Camper Monday, associate pastor here, and I too would like to welcome those of you who are visiting. Uh, we're glad that you joined us this morning, so welcome. And we're nearing the end of a, a sermon series, uh, the first five chapters of 2 Corinthians, uh, our series entitled, Trusting in the Sufficiency of God. Uh, or another way to, to put that would be, Trusting in the God who is Sufficient. Trusting in the God who is sufficient. But is He? Is He sufficient? Because it doesn't always feel that way. And so because of that, we often struggle to trust Him. You know what I mean. Sometimes life's circumstances so weighty, so overwhelming, that we feel crushed. That we feel even driven to despair. The Apostle Paul himself struggled like this. Uh, taking us back to chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he writes this in verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Affliction so great that he was utterly burdened beyond his strength, so much so that he despaired, and that's a strong word, that he despaired of life itself. Uh, to some degree, a deep, dark depression. It felt like a death sentence. As I was going through this text, it made me think of my friend Saul. Uh, several years ago, we were just getting to know each other. Uh, Saul was not yet a, a follower of Jesus and uh, a pretty rough character uh, and quite gruff at times, very sharp in some of the things he would, would say, but very honest. And I remember one of our particular conversations, Saul looked at me and he said, Camper, the biggest difference between you and me is that you have hope and I don't. In fact, I would consider it a good day if I were to walk across the street and a Mack truck would hit me and put me out of my misery. And around that, that time, there was a, a bumper sticker that I would see from time to time. Since I gave up hope, I feel much better. Uh, expressing disappointment and cynicism. But you know, if I'm honest, I have to say count me in. Because some of the time that bumper sticker is right across my own chest, right across my own heart. The blessing of low expectations. If, if I don't expect much, if I don't hope for much, then I'm not going to be quite as disappointed, am I? But that's a pretty miserable place to live, isn't it? So is there any real hope for us? Real hope in the midst of the very real pain, disappointment, and suffering that we face. Is God truly sufficient? Is He truly, fully the God of sufficient hope? And that's what we're going to consider this morning. And that leads us to our text, 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 10, though I'll begin reading from chapter 4, uh, verse 16 for context. And it's found on page 966 if you're using the Pew Bible. Well, let me pray for us uh, before we hear God's word. <clears throat> we come to you this morning, our gracious Lord. And we ask you to do what only you can do, and that is to make yourself known to us and to convince our hearts of who you are and who you have called us to be and who you are making us to be in Christ. And so once again, would you open this, your word, to us and us to your word, that we might encounter you, that we might be changed, transformed, and this morning that we might find hope in your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now hear the word of God from 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. For we know, we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And this is the word of God. Well, this morning I want us to consider our passage in two parts. Uh, longing for heaven and living faithfully here. Uh, lo longing for heaven. What is it that is our ultimate hope? What are we most longing for? And then does, does that in any way speak into our lives today, here and now, living faithfully here? Longing for heaven, living faithfully here. So we'll begin with uh, verses 1 through 5. Longing for heaven. 
Now, remember 2 Corinthians, and in particular the part of 2 Corinthians that we've been in, is set against the backdrop of suffering, of pain, of disappointment, difficulty, uh, a word that Paul uses a lot, affliction. And there is intense groaning in our passage. Uh, Paul writes, For in this tent, which is our earthly home, we groan. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Well, about 25 years or so ago, Scott Peck, M. Scott Peck, wrote a book entitled The Road Less Traveled. Uh, First two paragraphs. First paragraph I've got memorized. Life is difficult. That's paragraph number one. Life is difficult. Paragraph number two I don't have memorized, but I'll summarize for you. Life is difficult. Paragraph two, as soon as we accept that life is difficult, then life actually becomes less difficult. It is no longer as difficult. You see, when we accept the reality of a broken world, of broken lives, and recognize that complete fulfillment is not possible this side of heaven, then we are able to live lives that are less surprised. We're less surprised at the pain and the difficulty and the affliction that comes our way. And being less surprised, we are also able to be more expectant, not looking to be fulfilled here and now completely and totally, but being able to be expectant of all that has been promised to us in Christ, being expectant of all that is to come. Uh, Paul Simon, a singer, songwriter, uh, penned these words. The thought that life could be better is woven indelibly into our hearts and our brains. The thought that life could be better is woven indelibly in our hearts and our minds. And he's right. We long for life to be better. And the Apostle Paul points us to the ultimate Christian hope. The promise that one day all things will be made right. All sad things will come untrue. Jesus will return, judge all mankind, and those in Christ will be raised in glory, clothed in resurrection bodies, our heavenly dwelling. But for now, we live in these broken and breaking bodies. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work to be healthy, to be strong, we cannot avoid the fact that our bodies are fragile, that they are finite, that they struggle, and that they will die. But Paul points us to the great Christian hope, the reality of the resurrection and our resurrection bodies. Uh, He writes, verse 1 and following, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Longing for heaven. Think about it this way. Natural disaster strikes. Maybe you think of the, the recent tornadoes. Uh, Joplin, Missouri, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. 
Uh, a few years back, Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans and the surrounding area. True pain and suffering for millions. Uh, FEMA responds, Federal Emergency Management Agency. FEMA responds, uh, often providing FEMA trailers, uh, which at first a very welcome sight, uh, providing for people without a home. But after a while, and if, if you've followed uh, the aftermath of Katrina at all, uh, you might have read that, that after a while, uh, the, these living conditions, the FEMA trailers, wear down. They're not built to last. They get dirty. They get cramped. The people want out, and they are losing hope. Well, that's just like our earthly bodies. Our earthly bodies are FEMA trailers. We long for something more. We long for something better. And in Christ, we are promised a new day and a new body. One day, Jesus will return and we will be clothed with a new body, a resurrection body, just like Jesus. One day, we will be able to exchange the FEMA trailer that is our earthly body for a multi-million dollar mansion beyond our wildest dreams, for the Biltmore Estate, something we could never even imagine would be ours, will be ours in Christ. In his uh, paraphrase of the Bible, uh, the message, uh, Eugene Peterson translates part of our passage this way. We know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away, they will be replaced by resurrection bodies in heaven, God-made, not handmade, and we'll never have to relocate our tents again. And sometimes we can hardly wait to move, and so we cry out in frustration. And compared to what's coming, living conditions around here seem like a stopover in an unfurnished shack, and we're tired of it. But we've been given a glimpse of the real thing. Our true home, our resurrection bodies. The Spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a taste of what's ahead. He's put a little of heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for anything less. Longing for heaven. The best is yet to come. Well, what about here and now, today? That moves us into the second section. Uh, living faithfully here, verses 6 through 10. Let me reread those for us. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul transitions from the, the first section uh, into this second section with a, a repeated statement of confidence, a, a confident yearning, uh, verses 6 and 8. So we are always of good courage. Yes, we are of good courage. Why? 
Because you see, knowledge of the life to come encourages life today. Knowledge of, of what is to come speaks courage into life today. Paul knows that his broken down FEMA trailer body will one day be replaced by some mansion beyond his wildest dreams, a resurrection body, a heavenly dwelling, perfect, complete, whole, healthy. That's what he's longing for. Now, think for a moment about the, uh, the reality TV show Survivor. Uh, it's been on for about 10 years, and whether you've seen it or not, you probably know the basic gist. I think I saw about half an episode 10 years ago and 10 minutes of an episode 10 days ago. But it strikes me, you take a whole bunch of people and you put them on an island in the middle of the ocean, and they've got, I think it's 30 days, and they're competing against one, one another for the hoped prize of a million dollars. So they, they are competing, and the last one standing uh, gets, gets the million. For all in, in, intents and purposes, the, the catchphrase for this show might as well be uh, 30 days of hell for a lifetime of wealth, because that's really what is going on here. But what if all of those who were involved, every single person, was guaranteed a multi-million dollar gift at the end of that 30 days. Every single person. Well, for one, it would change the way that they interact with each other. They would not be competing because there would be nothing to compete over. In fact, they would be cooperating and caring for each other and trying to make more bearable the, these primitive circumstances over those 30 days together on that island. But more so, what they are promised at the end would so inform and give perspective to these 30 days of difficulty and pain and challenge. Another way to look at it would be think about a mother giving birth. Uh, she endures hardship and pain during labor. But she does so with real hope and encouragement because she knows the glory of new life about to appear. And so it is for us. Knowing what is ahead, what is around the corner, informs the here and now. Uh, Paul writes, uh, again, chapter 4, verse 17. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. An eternal Weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Paul in Romans 8 writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory, the goodness, and the grace that will be revealed in us. Not even worth comparing. Now, of course, Paul lives in the here and now. And he confesses, verse 8... That he is longing to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, he is longing to be away from his broken body. Ultimately longing to be re-embodied. To receive his resurrection body, his heavenly dwelling. But until then, Paul says, verse 9, Until then, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. And this is where Paul has been taking us. Our longing for heaven directs our living faithfully here. 
and our living faithfully here is summarized in this statement. We aim to please. We aim to please our Lord. Well, what does it mean to please someone? To please someone is a response to love. It's really love responding to love. To please or delight another, delight in another, uh, typically happening in the context of relationships of affection. Uh, I I was thinking about my relationship with my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Hope. Uh, Hope and I, sometimes they're just these wonderful moments when she really knows and is convinced of her dad's delight in her. Uh, that the favor of her father rests on her. And in those moments when, when we are together, uh, if music is playing, she'll just break out into dance and climb on dad and we'll, we'll wrestle. And Now this is rare, but occasionally, it's right before dinner time when we're having these great moments, and it's time to get ready for dinner. On those rare occasions, which are great, uh, I say, Hope, we need to, your room needs to be cleaned uh, before dinner. And she'll just skip back to her room and put up her stuff. I'm always amazed when this happens. Then it's time to wash her hands, which is something she normally doesn't like to do. But she just skips into the bathroom and climbs up on the stool and washes her hands. And we go and we pray and we have dinner. Because in those moments, it is, it is delight. It is love responding to love. And, and I bring that up because it is important to note something that is said right here. Note that our aim is to please the Lord, not appease Him. Seeking to please someone is responding to love. Seeking to appease someone is responding to fear. The wrath of God has already been appeased. And so now our aim is to please Him. Love responding to love. Well, Paul does speak of the coming judgment. We sang about it uh, earlier this morning. He speaks of the coming judgment in verse 10. And I do need to point out that for the unbeliever, if you are here and you have not put your trust in Jesus, this day should strike fear in you. Paul addresses this a little bit more in in the next section of chapter 5, and in fact, in the next section that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, where he is speaking to the believer and how because of this fear, the weightiness of this day, it should compel us, the love of God should compel us to go speak the good news as believers to unbelievers. But for you as an unbeliever, this should strike fear in you because apart from Christ, on that last day, Before the judgment seat, you will be judged based on your own merit. To quote Paul, by what you have done in your earthly body, whether good or evil. And you may think, well, I'm pretty good. But if you read scripture long enough, if you read God's word long enough, you begin to realize that good is not enough. In fact, the call is to perfection. And further, scripture is clear that all... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. No one is righteous, not even one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and run away from God. 
And the wages of sin is death. And apart from Christ, the wrath of God is upon you. But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is, is writing to believers. He's writing to Christians, to the church at Corinth. And so here for the believer, the coming judgment is a glorious day of hope. It is a day of future grace. Why? Because look at who the judge is in this passage. The judgment seat of Christ. Jesus will be our judge. And Jesus is a just judge. And a just judge only requires one payment. Our debt has been paid in full at the cross. The wrath of God satisfied. Forgiveness of sin. Reconciliation with God. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That day of final judgment for those who have put their trust in Jesus. That will be a glorious day. Because on that day we will not be judged based on our own merit. But on Christ's merit. His perfect record. On that day, we come face to face with our judge, who is also our Savior, Jesus. Jesus, the fullest and perfect expression of God's love. For as the Apostle John writes, God is love, and perfect love drives out fear. And so we aim to please, not appease our Lord. It's about expressing love, not trying to earn it. But how? How do we please God? Do what He commands, right? We've got a list of rules here. Follow the rules, we please God, right? Well, not exactly. Mere duty is not enough. Doing the right thing is not enough because God is after so much more. He is after our hearts. And so then what, what pleases God? Well, the key here is verse 7. Verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. <clears throat> well, in Hebrews 11, we learn this. Without faith... It is impossible to please God. So clearly, faith pleases Him. A trusting Jesus with all that we have, with all that we are, with every single thing that we are facing, trusting Jesus. And what is faith? Well, earlier in Hebrews 11, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In other words, faith, in the words of one commentator, is living all of one's life based on confident trust in God's promises for the future, even when one cannot yet see the fullness of the coming glory. The hallmark of walking by faith is dependency. 
dependency on Jesus 24-7. Not like your car being taken to the gas station once a week or every other week to be filled up and then you drive away until the tank is getting close to empty. Not like that. But like a bumper car that is continually connected to the source of life above. Always at every moment. By sight is about self-sufficiency. By faith is about Christ-sufficiency. Always in everything, depending on the Savior. And God uses our most difficult circumstances... God uses our most difficult circumstances to sharpen our faith and deepen our dependency on Him. Paul himself shows us that. Again, back to chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a death sentence. But, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us, past tense, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us, future tense. He will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again, finally and fully at the last day. Yes, we will struggle here and now, but there is sufficient hope for tomorrow, and there is sufficient hope for today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.